to Season 3, Episode 8 of Logicast, the AWS News podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today uh, by my esteemed colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? <laughs> esteemed. Esteemed. So I thought I'd use a new word. Uh -huh. Oh, dear. I'm all right. I'm okay. I can't complain on balance. Do you like esteemed? esteemed. Should we use it again? <laughs> I don't know. New, word, new word for me. I don't want to. Oh. Absolutely, uh, that's absolutely thrown you, hasn't it? So, it's, uh, it's my, gonna... my colleague John Goodall, Esquire. Like... <laughs> we can, we give you some letters after your name if you like. <laughs> None are fit for polite company. Or how about we go American and introduce you as uh, lead cloud engineer John Goodall the third. First of his name. <laughs> anyway, moving on, I'd, I'd also like to introduce our uh, special guest for today, Ben Pyle, uh, who's joining us uh, from the US. Ben is a fellow AWS community builder. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm good. Good morning. Good afternoon, wherever you're uh, listening in from. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Ben. What do you do for a living? Yeah, so I'm a CTO at a healthcare company that is uh, building uh, electronic medical records. So um, keeping track of patient data, patient information, uh, doctor visits, all, all of that information. So 100% AWS, 99.8% um, serverless. Don't ask me how I came up with that metric, but it's it's pretty close uh, yeah. to accurate. <laughs> yeah, like uh, like uh, all good statistics made up on the spot. Yes, on the spot. It'd be 98.7 <laughs> if we were to do this in an hour from now. <laughs> so are you a community builder in the serverless category? I am. I'm in the serverless. So I, I joined in 2023, um, anxiously uh, applied for 2024. So hopefully uh, good vibes. But uh, yeah, so I've been in the, in the program for about... Uh, going on 12 months, which is fantastic. Nice. So you're hoping for the backpack on renewal. Oh, I, I don't, I got the backpack on a side quest that I went on Ooh. earlier in the year and it's, it's pretty fantastic. So nice. Um. <laughs> You'd make a Carl jealous because he, this is his second stab at the backpack now. And you still haven't got the backpack. It, it's a really nice <laughs> backpack. Well, I won't reach and pull it up here in a minute. If that, that's, uh, I, I do have the uh, the user group. I have it down here. I'm not going to pull it up either because I'm probably knocking my microphone. But I have the uh, user group leader backpack, uh, which I think is of a oh, similar super. quality. So uh, yeah, I won't be too disappointed uh, if I don't achieve the backpack. But I am, as I've said many times on the podcast, I'm a year one community builder for the second year. <laughs> so I did not get renewed, but I got accepted again. And oh, I really wish you. I'd kept a, a note of what I put on the successful application because I can't remember <laughs> and I'm having Which to start all over again. But uh, yeah, it's uh, all good fun. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for joining us today, Ben. Yeah, um, as uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know, uh, once a week I collate a list of AWS news, which I share via my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I choose a subset of the articles from the newsletter that we'd like to talk about with our guests in a little bit more detail. So we've got a selection of articles this week. And the first article uh, is more of an announcement, really, rather than a, a full article. Uh, but there's some new features uh, that have been announced for AWS Control Tower. And the title of the article is AWS Control Tower Introduces APIs to Register Organizational Units. So we're just having a little chat in the preamble. I'm not sure that anybody on this episode today <laughs> is actually a user of Control Tower, but of course, we all know what it is uh, and uh, we probably all use different things to achieve similar results but uh, John um, tell me uh, your thoughts about about this announcement this is this is interesting it's more in the the vibes that we're getting post reinvent for control tower that it's getting a lot more attention <clears throat> excuse me um, as a company one of the things that we've been working on internally and that I've been spending an awful lot of my life doing is is 
building some tooling that allows us to do org management without using Control Tower for reasons. It's slow. You can only use it in the console. It's quite opaque. You can't drive it through code, so on and so on and so on. This is going some way to remediating some of those concerns because this is API endpoints that let you do things that were previously only available in the console. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality of that is those API endpoints will have existed anyway, but they just wouldn't have been documented or publicly available because the console's going to use the APIs. Let's be realistic here. But this is good, generally. More publicly available APIs means things like maybe uh, CloudFormation, but probably not. Things like Terraform and your nasty code can interface with control tower programmatically so you don't have to sit there watching it do stuff and then fall over you can tell it to do stuff and then fall over without you having to sit and watch it so this is good we like this it's it's a reasonably basic change though to be honest it's just um enabling ous so an ou for listeners that don't aren't familiar with orgs is an organizational unit and it's a way of logically grouping accounts together so in in landing zones that we deploy um as a company we have things like production workloads and non-production workloads and compliance accounts for you know your security tools and your in your logs and that kind of thing so that would be an ou um and all this is doing is it's making sure that you can register ous programmatically which is which is great why do you want to do that well you can apply controls to ous so that you're only um applying say restrictive controls to production and your controls on your development workloads are a little bit more flexible or potentially the other way around so that you're saying you know outside of production i only want to use really tiny instances please so you can start Mm -hmm. to do things like that Um, and it's nice that control tower is saying that you can now do this in a more automated provisioning workflow rather than sitting there with the console, which no one likes doing. What are your thoughts on this one, Ben? I know you're not a, a particular user of Control Tower, but... Uh, yeah, I ca- so I kind of too, like I, 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 you know, I run one one simple, you know, organization that's, uh, we've got, I think, uh, 10 different accounts that we manage up underneath our, our, main, our main org. And so uh, from a initial creation standpoint right like unless you're creating these things all the time i don't see a ton of value but i do see value in you know being able to refine your organizations and definitions and applying control tower to things that already exist right and i think that's something that i know looking back at like when we launched uh eight years ago i wish we would have really kind of kept up with uh, because we do a lot of organizational management through console and clicks uh, and don't have a ton of automation around around it and i would imagine that a lot of people have probably the same challenge uh, and so I feel like I, I need to catch up, so to speak, on kind of some of where this is going. Uh, so I, I loved hearing John's thoughts on kind of some of the use cases that they were looking at. Yeah, I mean, as a service provider, we manage a lot of orgs for a lot of customers. Mm-hmm. I've deployed. So we use um, org formation, which is an open okay. source project, which... Yeah solves for a lot of that because it, it just basically runs cloud formation plus a bit and you could do it in pipelines and you could do full GitOps and it's it's mm-hmm. brilliant so it solves for a lot of that um initial setup is awful um but yeah as you say once you've got that first organization dealt with yeah, yeah. unless you're having to regularly make changes to things it's it's not something you touch very often it's it's much more useful for say my use case than for yeah yeah most people that that aren't sitting across multiple organizations I, I we definitely get drift though between our between our setups and so i mean I, one of the things i was going to take away from any of this was that i need to get with my my ops team to look into how we can better manage 
uh, and look at applying some of these techniques and, and APIs against our current our current build. Nice. I'm sure your ops team are going to be happy to uh, hear of that uh, incoming <laughs> workload. They they always love it when I show up on things and then announce publicly to the entire world that there's going to be work coming their way. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had an idea. Go and yes. deliver this for me, please. Yes, and I and I announced it publicly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No pressure. Uh, anyway, on that note, let's move along uh, to our second article for this week, uh, which is all about AWS Code Pipeline. So this is an oh, article yeah. from the AWS DevOps blog, and the title is uh, AWS Code Pipeline Adds Support for Branch-Based Development and Mono Repos. And uh, I'm going to come to you first on this one, Ben, because I know you mentioned this is something that you are interested in. So, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so, I, you know, I may be one of the very few all in code commit, code build, code pipeline, code deploy. Like we're a hundred percent code everything. Uh, no GitHub, which sounds probably pretty foreign. Shocking. I know, I know no GitHub. So uh, first off, my initial response is where there was no support for code commit out of the box, which kind of gave me like this sad state internally uh, initially. But I know that they're working on some of those pieces. What I do like about it is, is we've got pipelines currently for hotfix branches. Uh, we've got our, our, ma our main deploy pipeline, right, where we're doing any kind of uh, main development. And then we've got some uh, monorepo stuff that we wrote some really gnarly lambdas uh, that deal with check-ins and determining branches and trying to figure out how to kick that off. And I love getting rid of code that I don't have to support anymore. So I'm excited to be able to, to truncate code that we're doing to support monorepos, lean into this feature. Uh, and like I said, now I can start killing pipelines that just manage, hey, I got a hotfix branch. Uh, and the whole, hang on, I need to reset this pipeline to now it's back to main and now it's not on the hotfix and to be able to pick up branch-based deploys. And I even was reading, it looks like it does, uh, you can run them in parallel, which was kind of cool. Uh, and I don't know 100% how this works. Maybe you do, John, because I haven't looked at it much yet. But like one of the things that's always a pain is, hey, engineering team, we're going to go into the hotfix deploy. So guess what? nothing can go to development for the next eight hours while we test this hotfix, right? So to be able to run in parallel, that would be pretty cool because then I can keep regular development going uh, while we're also looking at uh, shipping something that we probably should have fixed earlier in the deploy cycle. So that's my, my general, like I'm really excited about this one because it feels like a, a nice step forward, something that um, probably should have always been there, but like at the same time, that's kind of one of the the pros and cons of being in a you know super tightly coupled to a cloud provider is you get all the benefits as they get released and so uh, it's never a hundred percent in day one. Yeah, this is absolutely a, a tool that I think I saw a very spicy take that said this would have been brilliant in twenty eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when we started when we started with CoPipeline twenty eight yeah twenty eighteen would have been been really good early on to have this yeah so branch-based deploys and, and support for mono repos is not earth shattering it's not groundbreaking but as you say it takes a lot of nasty work away and this is something that github gitlab bitbucket in jenkins to an extent um has supported for ever yeah. it's it's why did this take so long in terms of the you know what is it doing how is it useful it's you've got for the listeners benefit more than anything it's You've got one pipeline that can handle different things depending on what branch is calling it. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Because why is that useful? Well, if a dev branch has had a, a push to it, I want to deploy to my dev environment and only my dev environment, please. And I'd also like to run a bunch of tests automatically. Mm -hmm. Great. If it's had a, a push to a staging environment, a staging um, 
branch, then I want to run dev and I want to run staging. I don't want to run my unit tests, but I do want to run um, some integration tests against that environment. For production, I don't want to run any tests. I do want to make sure that we get a test deploy in and I want a manual gate to say, push button, go please. And all of that is in the one pipeline. So you don't have a, if this branch, run this pipeline. If that branch, run that pipeline. If that branch, run that pipeline. And this is something that GitLab is the example I like to use, has been doing for a decade, I think. It's been doing it for, <clears throat> excuse me, a very long time. And it, it makes engineers' lives, like me, a lot mm-hmm. easier because you've only got the one thing to manage and look for and alert on and kind of all the rest of it. The parallel execution is less useful than it might first sound. What that means is it's potentially useful depending on how you're working your pipeline. Um, What it means is executions won't stop and wait for each other. So they won't queue up and then do the next one and then the next one and then the next one. They'll just run. And that's somewhat useful depending on how you've written your pipelines. So you could have um, a pipeline that creates an an ephemeral environment in a dev account for you, stands it up, deploys, lets you do your thing, and then gets rid of it afterwards. That means that those aren't blocked behind a production deployment or a production deployment isn't blocked behind an ephemeral creation, Mm -hmm. for instance. But if you don't have that kind of setup, then in theory, you could just be deploying twice to the same environment at the same time and blow everything up. So it's it's not perfect. There is definitely a use case for it, but you've got to work with it. It doesn't just solve problems for you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's kind of where I was going was that if, if you've got that scenario, sure, but running to your point, uh, two just regular dev builds, you know, last in wins, uh, and, mm. and that would be that'd be kind of bad. Yeah, and that's where you end up. Any kind of phase gates. Yes, it's phase gating, and you end up with having to do things like if you use Terraform, for instance, with state file locking, and then your pipelines start fighting with each other for a lock, and it's yeah. like, oh. oh, so it's 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 a very useful feature. It's very useful, um, and I think most other providers allow you to do this as well. But by default. I certainly GitLab, not about GitHub, um, will serialize your builds such that one must finish before the next one right. starts to avoid you overwriting each other. You still have that last one in wins, but at least it's a clean deployment rather yeah, than yeah, a yeah. Not partial. A, same time. Sure, you get two yeah. cloud formation stacks running at the same time. <laughs> yeah, big That'd mess. <laughs> I'm excited, though. This is one that, I mean, again... When you know, been in code pipeline since I don't know 2018, 2019. So have been kind of waiting for something like this to come out, and this feels really good. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Nice. Well, on that note, uh, let's talk about AI. It wouldn't be an uh, AWS uh, podcast uh, in the current that 2023. <laughs> 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 I think we got we got plenty more AI to come uh, right throughout 2024. <laughs> Uh, and maybe beyond, but uh, maybe mm. the bubble will burst sooner than that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure we've had an episode in 2024 where we haven't spoken about AI. Uh, even though we're not huge fans of talking about AI, you just can't avoid AI uh, if you're uh, looking at the trade press in the moment. Um, but this is an article uh, on the AWS News blog announcing some new features uh, for Amazon Bedrock, uh, which of course is uh, AWS's big AI play. Um, and uh, specifically, uh, this article is talking about knowledge bases for Amazon and Bedrock now supporting uh, Aurora Postgres and Cohere embedding models. Um, so, um, John, thoughts on no, this one? I love talking about AI. I, don't I was glad to. that I was number two because I knew you'd go yeah. back to him first on three. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a carefully executed plan. Yes, I love it. 
It's bold of you to think there's a plan. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, AI is not my bag, but I wanted to talk about this because the ability to use something other than open search serverless for storing your vector databases is, is important. So open search serverless is really expensive. And if you had custom vector databases, now what is a vector database? A vector is basically a mathematical representation of your model, effectively. That's that's the idiot's version. Um, and being able to put it in something that isn't $700 a month starting price, mm, chef's kiss, because Aurora Postgres is so much cheaper than Open Search Serverless. That's the yeah. big one. And honestly, it was it was amazing to me that that was the first thing that it supported and was the only thing that came out with at launch. Like, who who... What product person didn't think that one through? Really? Fair enough. And what about the uh, the additional model that it supports? Anything to say on that? The Cohere embedding models? I'm not really familiar with it, to be honest. I'm not really familiar. So I, uh, no real comment. Um, a, a, apart from, again, another custom vector store, Pinecone Serverless, just because it sounds cool. <laughs> we have a lot of pine cones in Texas. <laughs> really? Yeah, we have pine cones in Texas. They're probably bigger than the pine cones. That you have <laughs> well, I mean, that, I, I kind of walked right into that one. <laughs> Just like everything. Everything in Texas. <laughs> cool. All right, let, let's move on to something we might have a little bit more uh, to, yeah. to say about then, uh, which is this uh, article on data center dynamics uh, about a new power purchase agreement that Amazon has signed uh, with a wind farm in Oregon. Uh, so, of course, obviously Amazon uh, moving to, uh, I think they, they already have the status as the largest purchaser of renewable energy on the planet. And uh, this, of course, will be ticking another box uh, against that credential. Um, lots of data centers uh, in Oregon already. Um, so uh, interesting to see this um this new power purchase agreement. And I know this is an area that you mentioned again yourself, Ben, that you were uh, interested in or uh, have uh, insight into. Yeah. So I, I, <clears throat> my father was a geologist, so he was an oil and gas researcher and finder. My brother is a meteorologist in the wind sector <laughs> and renewable spaces. Thanksgiving was a lot of fun to hear that <laughs> go back and forth of fossil fuels versus renewable energy. No, I, I'm, I'm interested in this because I, I mean, I do, I, I've, um, I've been you know, spending a lot of time with, with other languages, looking at sustainability, right? Spending, how can I reduce my compute? How can I reduce what I'm, what I'm doing in the cloud? Uh, being real conscientious about what I'm creating. I thought Werner's keynote was really pretty poignant in the at reInvent last fall, where he talked a lot about frugality and cost and sustainability. Um, I kind of look at this as I, I like to see Amazon making investments in, in renewables. Um, you know, even if I had asked my dad when he was still alive, how much longer are we going to have on fossil fuels? The answer is not forever, right? We can argue about whether it's 50 years or 200 years or 300 years. It's not forever. Um, and, and I'm one of those believers that, you know, we're, we're, we're causing damage to our ecosystem. So I, I love to see Amazon investing in, in renewables um, and especially, you know, Microsoft did this years ago when they had, you remember their submersible data center that they had? Yeah, uh, it was like, yeah, they were using ocean temps to, to keep it cool and run it. Like, I think all of these projects, the wind energy seems way more sustainable <laughs> than trying to drop pods of servers in the ocean. But maybe that was. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just 
it's kind of a feel good for me. It's one of those things that's like, I appreciate it and I'm excited to continue to see them invest. Um, be curious to see if they do this beyond just Oregon. I mean, there's a lot of wind production in Texas. We Our wind is bigger in Texas, if you haven't heard. <laughs> uh, you know, and there's, there's a lot of other places where, where data centers exist up and down the eastern seaboard where there's also uh, good wind, wind production that would be interesting to see if they, they start making investments there as well. I'm sure the Scottish and the Dutch would disagree with that. Wind is bigger. That in the Texas. wind is bigger. In- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you on that one as well. <laughs> Having been to the Highlands, I've, ne- I've not been to Texas, but I've been to the Highlands. Ooh, ooh. There's a lot of wind up there. <laughs> There's a lot of wind. <laughs> There's a lot of wind in Oklahoma as well. If you believe the there song. is a lot of wind in Oklahoma. I'm not about to burst into song, so yeah. please no, don't. Please don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I- <laughs> but the song's going around in my head right now, so. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I've triggered that little e-worm for the listeners. I hope not. (laughs) This is is definitely an interesting one because whilst it's a purchase agreement, it's a repowering. So what does that mean for those of us that don't live in that bubble? Well, turbines, like everything, have a a limited lifespan. And after a while, the turbine themselves isn't, as far as I know, particularly reusable, renewable, any of that. It's this big lump of metal that's got a lifespan of X number of years or decades. But because of the sheer amount of force that they have to go through with all the big spinning and all the rest of it, they only last for X amount of time. Mm-hmm. And we've seen some projects where, you know, the blades are then reused to build bridges for like light foot traffic because whilst they can't handle that rotation force anymore, they're still really big, solid pieces of metal. But what are you going to do with all of that? This doesn't answer that, but this is refurbishing stuff that would have been at end of life anyway. So that's kind of where the money's going, which is, it's kind of a double whammy because it's, yes, we're going to get another, was it 98.4 megawatts, not 1.21 gigawatts. It's disappointing. No, yeah, but We're not going to go back in the future. <laughs> <laughs> it's Yeah. It's not enough to power the DeLorean, but it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's quite a bit of juice. So they're getting a lot of, um, renewable juice brilliant and they're taking things that are effectively going to be on the scrap heap and and refurbishing which is mm-hmm. good 2.0 i suppose it's good twice nice well let's stick on the subject of sustainability as we talk about our final article for this week uh, which is uh, not specifically about aws some of it's about amazon some of it's about aws uh, but the article uh, is entitled seven ways amazon is using ai again bing, ai to build a more sustainable future um so um the first one is reducing packaging use. And I've got to be honest, I'm not sure it's working because some of the weird boxes uh, I get from Amazon, <laughs> like tiny little things in these yes. great boxes, it's, uh, I think they need to be tuning those models a little bit more. Um, uh, yes and no. It's, it's an interesting one because I've read into this, not on this article, but previously. There's a number of factors that go into the type of packaging that's, that's used. And it's not just what's in the box because... If you think about it, if you ship something that's in a box that's in the perfect shape for that box, and say it's a square thing and it fits quite neatly, but it gets bashed to all hell in in transit and you have to send it back again, you've then tripled the carbon emissions for moving that product around because it's got one set to go to the customer, another set to go back, and then a third set to send the correct one back again. So you're better off going for a slightly bigger piece of cardboard that can take a beating rather than it being the perfect size for the product. So that kind of explains that. Then there's the 
work that Amazon were famed for doing a little while ago about uh, packing efficiency in the van so that you can get more in it because you've used, again, maybe it's not the perfect thing for the box, but it's it's a much more standardized shape so you can fit things in the bags and in the sacks and in the vans mm. a whole lot better. So there's that as well. So it's not it's not quite as obvious as it says on the tin. Granted, yes, I've seen some really weird things where you've had like a packet of batteries in a box this big. Like, What, what was that about? But that it's more complicated than it might seem. My my favourite weird delivery was uh, going back. It's got nothing to do with Amazon. This, so I'm, I'm kind of going a little bit. Off topic. Sticking with the uh, with the delivery um, issue. Uh, I remember we bought. Um, I believe it was HP Care Packs for servers, um, which basically was like a license key. Um, but this license key came printed on a piece of paper inside a box and uh, we'd ordered multiple servers so we needed multiple boxes containing multiple pieces of paper which came in an enormous great big box which was shipped from south america and i'm not kidding you this box was about this box was about three feet by two feet it contained about 20 medium-sized boxes which when you opened them had packaging around a piece of paper with a license key on it which was just <laughs> showing my age here but you remember when you go to a shop and you'd buy it was just about the time when cds for software were were being killed off so it was all digital downloads but you still went to a shop and you bought a, a dvd case that had a mm -hmm. download key in it <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't couldn't change the production pipeline <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I kind of the same way i mean it's it it does seem curious but when you you do start thinking about it's not just the packaging it's the transit, it's the, the human time, it's the, you know, all of the other things that go into it. Um, I, and I don't, I don't know this specifically. I always get a little bummed when I see all the plastic packaging that's inside of it. And, and I know that there's, you know, making sure that your cargo is safe inside that bigger box. I hate to see the inflated plastic. Um, just, I don't know. I don't know if that's, I'm, yeah. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's reusable. I'm sure it's compostable or biodegradable. Uh, but uh, it just feels weird. I feel like there's going to be getting better. That, I, that is getting better. Like the the really big bubble wrap things is, yeah, is yeah, that, yeah. that is biodegradable and it's like six yeah. weeks or something rather than the old fashioned lots of little teeny tiny bubbles. Which yeah. as fun as that is to sit there and pop is, it is. it's not brilliant. <laughs> but you can now get reusable popping things. You get those little silicon ones where you can pop the bubble and it comes back again. So you don't, you don't actually. Need <laughs> so you don't need to actually have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's fact, like a reuse. It's like a reusable cup at that point. Yeah, uh, you can just get an app actually on your phone to do that. You're just gonna sit just there tap popping, your phone on it. Popping bubbles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very sustainable. If, if um, the phone raises itself back up to meet your finger, I got to get one of those phones. <laughs> like that. Yeah. That'd be wicked. I need one of those. It's taken haptics to a new level. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the second um, the second uh, way that Amazon is using the AI to build a more sustainable future is identifying damaged items to prevent waste. Um, so, so it's yeah. kind of much the same as the point I made about it being damaged in transit, but it's damaged before it goes out the door. Humans aren't infallible at seeing something that's been bashed around in the warehouse and warehouses are not safe places they're just not i don't know if anyone for the listeners that don't work in warehouses <coughs> warehouses are not safe places big forklifts running around all the place and it's just yeah things get damaged and then they get put back on the shelf because someone's either well-meaning and didn't think it was damaged or wanted to hide that they dropped it because they get in trouble which is a reasonable thing to do you're supposed to report it but you'd get written up for it so they they hide it which is you know human nature so again if we can prevent 
this triple shipping effect effectively more the better are they are they you think they're using something like recognition to be able to scan packages and then maybe determine just based upon you know i don't know damage shape it'll be it'll be machine vision of some sort yeah yeah something like yeah that. yeah here's the uh here's the correct item here's the uh <laughs> the item compare the two do they look the same i guess that's kind of how it works there's some definite improvement the, yeah uh, similar to what's going on in number three, I guess, which is the monitoring uh, produce to reduce food waste. Um, I, I do, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I, I just like that one because it's got mushrooms and AI in the same article, and I'm a fan of mushrooms. So I was like, <laughs> I'm scrolling through, I was like, this is a really cool article. It's got mushrooms in it. So, um, and, and, and fresh veggies. I don't, that one's curious to me because that one kind of goes back to like the content inspection too. Uh, box inspection is one thing. We, we've gotten an increasingly large amount of, and I say increasing large amount. If like we get, I don't know, ten Amazon packages delivered in a week, uh, so forty in a month. I don't know if it's that many, but maybe it is. There's a higher rate of defect that we've had to return back recently, like in the last twelve months, than what I traditionally remember. So I'm a fan if they can reduce that. But again, you're kind of item level inspection. Like it's one thing: is the box good, but is the item good? And then food mm-hmm. waste and determining how. I could get it like on a tomato, but I don't understand how you're going to tell if an avocado's, you know, not good anymore, right? Because it's yeah, a, it's, yeah. te- it's it's texture. So um, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that unless you've got something physical in that space that you'd be able to do that real well. Well, this is this is referring specifically to Amazon Fresh rather than yeah. you know shipping anything. Which, as you say, for things like tomatoes or uh-huh. or, or mushrooms or peppers or anything like that that have a very Pota- visual potatoes. <laughs> Potato, Let's call potatoes. the whole thing off. <laughs> but it's potatoes now. <laughs> oh dear! Uh, the, you know, they visually degrade, so you can do it with a camera. Brilliant for yeah. things that degrade internally, or a potato being a good example where it, unless it starts growing things, yes. it will go sort of squidgy <laughs> before oh. it, it visually shows. So it's a texture thing. Um, it's it's tricky. It's good that it's available for certain things because it means that your waste on apples goes right down. But well, I'm kind of like picturing. Have you ever seen those like uh, fair games with the little crane that hands? Yeah. I'm, pic- yeah, I'm picturing yeah, yeah. like a crane with like sensors on its on its graspers to be able to to do some kind of determination because that's squeezing like, an avocado. Yeah, <laughs> testing it out or a potato before. You stop it doing in, that before it puts it in your basket. <laughs> But I mean, that is, I mean, like I, I'm, I, I'm bummed obviously when like I get one tomato that's bad out of like a group of like 15. Okay. That's a big deal. But like with avocados, like, I mean, I may only order three and if they're all three bad, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a huge savings um, to be able to get that out. Especially if I'm looking at back, I don't know, picking baskets to be able to sort for fresh. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things about quality food processing in there that I think is that AI could totally help with. And I'm not like this big nice. AI fan, but I think that there's a lot of useful places there that um, you could do these checks quicker with probably a reasonable level of accuracy as opposed to having a human sit there and do this over and over and over, which is really just a bad use of our time. Absolutely. Uh, the fourth way that Amazon's using uh, AI to help reduce or to, to, to improve sustainability is by helping customers find the perfect fit and i have to say this has just failed me i think i need to send my running socks back to help retrain the model (laughs) because my shoe size is right at the top of the small and at the bottom of the large and it said go large and i went large 
and these new running socks are rubbing my feet like sandpaper. So uh, I'm not sure this one's working. Particularly I've got a better well. solution. In my Don't run. No, no socks. Oh. Well, I could just not, not run. Yeah, I could, I could run barefoot. Yeah, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff to step in around here that I don't really fancy. You go natural. Around. Go back to your yeah. your original human roots and run barefoot. Yeah. <laughs> on concrete. On concrete. Well, yeah. you have to get in the you have to get in the dirt to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, this one um, concerns me a little. I mean, I think it's interesting because I don't clothes buying on like. So my wife and I were at the store the other day. We were at Academy, which is a sporting goods store, and like, I don't even know why we go to the store anymore. Like, there are like products they don't have their full array of products in a lot of stores. Academy does; they were really good, but there was another store that didn't. And I was like, why are we even at the store? Like, why don't you just buy it online? And if we got into a point where it's like the purpose of the store. In the physical space but then you think about the waste right so like i can go and try on three pairs of running socks but so what do you do to, to solve your running socks well i'm gonna order three pairs of running socks on amazon and now they're gonna ship me three and now i've taken inventory on two things that i didn't need and now i've got this return trip and it's super super wasteful i, I don't I don't know. I, it's telling that it's, department stores have a return option as ordered for choice. It's very yeah. telling because they know how many people do that. Yeah. So I, there's there's a lot of room for improvement in this area, and I I, I don't I, I don't know. Reading the article, it sounds like they're trying to make some you know investments in it, but I don't know how you get around just physically being able to touch and put and adjust and test the item yourself or something along those lines. Yeah, I think without having more detailed data about you as the, the 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 purchaser, I think it's very difficult for AI to make any recommendations. How does Amazon's AI know which socks to recommend me? <laughs> um, you know. If you hadn't bought any before either, right? Like yeah, what exactly. if you're a first time yeah, yeah. buy or what if like New Balance don't fit the same way as Nike? You know, this yeah. is a really far out thing, but it's almost like the next generation of some of this should be the, you would have a physical Amazon sizer. <laughs> Like as yep. an Amazon Prime subscriber, you, you can test out certain things so that you've got this kit so you could reduce. I mean, because I don't sort of like I've got this just, brilliant image now of, of, of a gentleman in an Amazon suit turning up and measuring you. Yes. yes. <laughs> Inside like leg measurements. Then. I, I was sticking with socks. <laughs> but yeah, something along there's got to be some kind of I don't know, like this is really crossing over at that point. But it's like there's a lot of waste in this process. Absolutely. You're right. But, uh, you know, let's see. Uh, hopefully AI can can help with that. Um, fifth one, measuring carbon footprint for products. Let's skip through these quickly. I'm conscious of time, but. Uh, Nothing yeah. really to say that carbon footprint's important. It needs to be reported on in certain cases. So it can take as it says here, it can take a single person hundreds of hours to work it out for a single product. Um, and that's what AI is quite good at is just taking lots of big data sets and crunching that down to something vaguely meaningful. So that's good. Mm. Preventing deforestation in Brazil by democratizing data. This seems like a pretty uh, important use case for AI. Yeah, I think anytime we can use computing to monitor things that are hard to monitor from down on the surface, uh, I think is super helpful. I, I, I know we do a lot of this with, with animals and habitats and, and that sort of. I just I think that there's so many things that are happening that we don't see that if AI can provide any insight to this stuff, um, I think I mean, the rainforest is irreplaceable for like stating the obvious at this point. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think it's a really, really good use for AI to be able to monitor and observe and kind of be above a level, almost like meta observation of, of areas. So I think it's cool. 
And just to bring it back to AWS, because we've strayed quite quite a bit away from AWS, the last point in this article is about using AWS chips to power AI more efficiently. So obviously, all of these large language models have a huge uh, compute requirement. Compute requires power to run it. So the more efficiently we can run that compute, the better. Um, so anything to say on the AWS chips for AI? So I, I'm not a hardware geek, but at the same time, like this strategy by them to use John's word is brilliant. I'm trying to get my my language correctly so my but it, i do think it's brilliant i think it's a great what they did with leveraging building their own ships to run their own infrastructure i mean that was just such an amazing investment that they've done and i think it was extremely smart um especially when you're thinking about them building all of this well-connected infrastructure to be able to optimize around right their chips yet i just think so a really really smart move and and again going back to all the different ai use cases if they can if they were doing all of this use case, but it was not net productive, right? They were creating more waste by trying to be sustainable in other areas. Uh, that would be kind of a bad move, right? So, but to actually be able to do some of this while also reducing their their consumption and their compute power, I think is, uh, I don't know, I think it's just really, really smart. Nice. Anything to add, John? Every time I see the word trainium, I just think of trains. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas the Tank Engine now. I'm going way, way back. <laughs> oh, my kids are about that sort of age. so I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's popular in your house right now. <laughs> Trains last until about six. <laughs> yeah. Well, not for, for some people, it's a lifelong obsession. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I have real issues with Thomas the Tank Engine because the whole thing, <laughs> it's, it's, it's capitalist propaganda. <laughs> it's all about being really useful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> on that note we have reached the end of our time uh for uh, season three episode eight of logicast so if you manage to stick with us thank you for listening uh thank you john as always for your insights and thank you ben for joining us um thanks from for texas me. where everything is bigger apparently um so including <laughs> including the wind Win. <laughs> so uh that was season three episode eight of logicast thank you for listening uh, if you enjoyed it please tell your friends uh, about the podcast you can download us from wherever you get your podcasts and if you'd like to see what we look like uh, while we're talking to one another uh, we're also available on youtube we'll be back next week with another episode of logicast for you we'll see you again next time thank you <laughs>